Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In today's episode of What About Death, I speak with Dr. Hannah Gould, a cultural anthropologist from the University of Melbourne, who tells us about death culture and its influence on the movement towards more natural burials, and also how the digital world opens death up to much greater creativity and connection. I'd like to introduce Dr. Hannah Gould, who holds a PhD in anthropology at the University of Melbourne and a Master of Science from the Oxford University in the United Kingdom. Currently, Dr. Gould is a research fellow with the Death Tech Research Team based at the University of Melbourne and Oxford University. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, Dr. Gould. Thank you for having me. So um, the first question that I ask all of my guests is, what is your first recollection of death? You know, it's a kind of hazy recollection, I suppose. I think when I was very young, we used to go up and visit my grandfather, my mother's father, and he lived in Canberra. They both lived in Canberra. And he... He was in a hospital bed, you know, bound to a hospital bed in in, in his home, um, having contracted, well, being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis kind of quite early in his life. And I kind of distinctly remember going up on one trip to Canberra and my mum, you know, telling me, I used to go and, you know, sit, sit on the hospital bed next to him and watch TV and, you know, chat away as I would. But I kind of remember one trip going up there and my mum said, well, you know, it's really important this time that you go and say goodbye to your grandfather. And, you know, I could kind of realise that all the adults in the room were really kind of sad and and kind of, you know, very sombre. My mum was crying and I, I didn't really understand why at the time. But, you know, there was, there's obviously was some sort of advice that, you know, I probably wouldn't um, see him again alive. And, you know, that was the next time we went up to visit them. It was for his funeral. But I, I kind of, it's that kind of childhood thing where you kind of understand on one level what's going on, but you're not really sure exactly what that means. And kind of until I was at the funeral and kind of asked some pretty, you know, those kind of pointed, innocent questions that children do that kind of (laughs) tend to disarm people. Um, But, you know, I think that was probably my first experience of very much that experience of like what it actually means for someone to become absent, you know, for, for them to, to the, be there one day and not the next. So I was probably quite young, probably about five or six. So I think that kind of always, it was something I kind of confronted quite an, a young age, I suppose, in that way. Now you talk about 
um, what I find really interesting is that you talk about having an interest in the stuff of death and the death of stuff. So yeah. where did that come from? Well, I, I started out research really quite interested in, in Buddhism. So my background is in anthropology of, of Buddhism. And I was really interested in how transcendental or beyond this world forces, religious forces maybe, become tangible and touchable and breakable, I suppose, in, in material form. So I started really looking at kind of Buddhist altars and all these kind of religious objects and how they move around the world. And, and that kind of got me interested, I suppose, in the relationship between stuff and between death. And so on the one hand, how is it that people who are, who are gone, our ancestors, our loved ones, how do they become present in objects that we hold, that we make, that we design? And then also, you know, what kind of happens when we choose to dispose of those items? So looking at, you know, how people actually detach themselves from things, whether that be through something quite like, you know, the, the lifestyle movement of minimalism or if it's just through the process of perhaps throwing out objects, downsizing, you know, trying to live more simply towards the end of your life or at any period of your life. So there's something really interesting in looking at it from both those ends because you end up in this kind of consideration of how exactly it is that people detach or detangle themselves before the end. Now you have some of your research at least is around natural burials. So what's your perspective on the shift that we seem to be seeing towards more natural burials and why do you think that shift is important? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think baby boomers actually hold quite a lot of importance and power in this in this um in the death care space I suppose um and we what we do see is that a lot of of baby boomers in particular maybe they grew up slightly you know more secular or even you know exploring different religions from different parts of the world they have you know these are the kind of cultural revolution of the 60s and 70s heyday generation they've had funerals for their parents and they've had They've bought grave sites for their parents and maybe those experiences have, have left them a bit, they're a bit dissatisfied, you know, with that kind of the traditional church ceremony and with the, the kind of buying a grave, just how expensive it is, it is, just how much of an impact on the environment it can have, thinking about things like embalming and oak caskets and concrete. And I think it's a, a sense in which this generation is actually trying to get back to more kind of environmentally friendly but also perhaps more natural ways of, of death and dying. And I use that term quite critically because I think as an anthropologist, you know, there's no such thing as natural. Everything we call natural is a cultural production. We, you can argue for days on end about exactly what nature is and, and what it means to die naturally. But there is, in that sense, an attempt for this generation in particular to kind of pull away a bit of the artifice around death and dying and to confront it more head on. And I think part of that means embracing the fact that once you die, you know, your body will decompose. And that means not trying to interrupt or stop that process, but actually letting that happen through natural burial. So what are the alternatives currently to the, the traditional methods of burial and cremation? 
Yeah, so we call, you know, the big two um, of conventional burial and cremation, and they represent the majority of methods of, of disposal, disposition around the world at the moment. And then we have kind of a number of emerging alternatives. So natural burial is a, a big one and is probably the most prevalent around the world, particularly popular in places like the United Kingdom where they have a tradition of woodland burial and, you know, emerging very strong, I think, desire for it to be more popular in Australia and for us to have more natural burial grounds or perhaps bush burials. And then we have some other alternatives. So, for example, we have something called alkaline hydrolysis, which is using water and sometimes lye to dissolve human remains. And it produces very much the same way that cremation produces Bones, alkaline hydrolysis also, what you're left with basically is bones that can then be turned into ash and, and, and scattered or do what you will. And that's a technology that was first pioneered very much to handle medical donations. So a lot of hospitals will use it and it also is often used for livestock and agriculture. That's also considered to be much more environmentally friendly than traditional methods of burial and cremation. And that's quite popular in the US. It's had some inroads into Australia, but really requires a lot more legislative support to get off the ground. And then I suppose the other really big player, the other big name is something called recomposition, recompose, sometimes also called natural organic reduction or perhaps more popularly, um, human composting. Um, and that's, a, yeah, it's, it's, it says, it's, it is what it says on the tin in many ways. Um, you know, I always think of, I don't know if you know those like green composting bins that you can have that you rotate outside the sure. front of your house. Yeah. Mm. It's actually quite similar to that. So, recompose should really be thought of as a method to speed up. The process of natural burial. So it's natural burial, but if we wanted to try to take that transformation from the human body to soil quicker, make it faster. And so you do that by really controlling the temperature, controlling the the, the different microbes that are in it, the levels of oxygen, that sort of thing. Um, and it's quite useful if, for example, you don't have a lot of land for natural burial. If you only have, you know, a small city area that's quite densely populated. Okay, how do we do natural burial? in that kind of land poor area. And so one way to do it is to kind of speed up that process without kind of having the environmental impact of something like cremation, for example. So I think I've heard a lot of interest about that one and, and people are certainly very, very um, excited to potentially have it in Australia, although I think we've probably got the room to have natural burial grounds um, in our country more so than we have now. So I'm interested in what the obstacles are because we're very conditioned, aren't we, to follow traditional methods. So what have you seen? I mean, even like some of the language that you've used, you know, the, uh, what did you say, human composting is <laughs> like, is how the language is used and the narratives around this contribute to the obstacles? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole heap of different obstacles and some of them are quite I suppose practical so some of them are to do with legislation and how the treatment of human remains is is legislated and um, regulated in Australia so it's a state-based state-based but then there's the Human Tissue Act which is federal and it's no one's really sure who's in charge of it and it's quite difficult to to you know I always say that, you know, dead people make very poor advocates for legal change. So <laughs> it's quite it's quite difficult to know 
who to lobby in in this situation to get changes go through. But it also it is also I think cultural, which is what you're pointing to, which is that the funeral sector or death care in general is is really conservative in in ways that are kind of unexpected. And I think it's partially got to do with the fact that we just as I'm sure you know, don't like to talk about our death, don't like to consider it. And a lot of us never make plans for what we want to happen to our body. We never even want to think about it. And so what happens is that when someone we love dies, we feel a lot of pressure all of a sudden to make a quick decision. And it's very difficult at that point in time to do something new or experimental, right? We're kind of, we feel uncertain that that's even allowed. So we tend to fall back on more conservative options, which are, well, we'll we'll just bury them conventionally or we'll just, you know, we'll just cremate people. That's easiest. That's what we've always done. And, you know, the kind of how we approach death and dying, how the, the funeral industry introduces options to us is also very much the case. So, you know, for example, you know, you only really can pick from what is shown to you on the brochure by the funeral director, but there are heaps of other options out there that you could have picked, but, you know, you're in that kind of situation of not really knowing what to do and maybe, you know, you're quite emotional and it's just this quite a stressful situation and all of a sudden you're being asked to make this really big decision. And it's quite difficult, I think, at that moment in time to go for something that is more experimental, even if it's what you think the deceased might have actually wished for. So do you think it's most crucial to get the legislative changes first or do you think the grassroots movement towards alternatives is likely to get that legislative change? Yeah, I mean, the way that it's, <laughs> I in a way, I think it's a, a bit of a cat and mouse game because I think that the industry is well aware that there is a demand, there is a desire for new alternative options, but they 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 can't, and you know the legislation is such that they could start moving ahead with those, but there's there's not enough of a kind of groundswell, I suppose, of, of really demand, and so it's it's kind of we need to demonstrate that there is actually a significant amount of demand for a certain option, say for example a natural burial ground. So I know that in certain states in Australia, so South Australia for example, has just in their recent cemeteries and crematoria legislation actually introduced a specific kind of description of what natural burial is and what a natural burial ground should look like and and legalised it. Whereas other states, you know, New South Wales didn't actually have any legislative framework for cemeteries and crematoria until 2013. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's this kind of grey area in Australian um, uh, legislation where, you know, some things are very some states are really on the ball and moving forward and, and others are really lagging behind. So I think we do need to demonstrate that there's actually a great desire for these greener alternatives, which, I mean, hopefully this kind of baby boomer generation will do because they certainly hold a lot of political power in other realms. So hopefully they'll be able to use that to advocate around death and dying. And I did just recently notice that Rookwood Cemetery in Sydney is running out of space. So, I mean, it's not as if it's something that we can just leave aside. It's quite a significant issue, really. Oh, yeah, it's a huge issue. And, you know, there's been a recent report out called The Eleventh Hour, which is this kind of very dramatic call for change in the industry, in the sector, because of what's happening in Sydney and specifically. You know, there are some communities in Sydney thinking protect you know potentially people like the Maori or the Russian Orthodox who will run out of 
space for burials in community areas within the next four to five years. I think that report suggests that in the next 10 to 12 years, Sydney will just have no more room for burials, which <laughs> is is really dramatic and terrifying. Yeah. But um, unfortunately, it's it's I've kind of started drawing the the kind of analogy to climate change in the sense that it's a slow moving it's a it's a slow moving issue which day to day you might not notice the impact of or not feel compelled to advocate for it or change for it but then all of a sudden one day it's really going to affect you and it's going to affect the entire of society quite drastically and so it's it's difficult to muster political support to advocate for it but it's really essential that we do because otherwise we're going to end up in a decade with not having sufficient room to bury people in the way that their cultural or religious background demands of it. And I think that will have a huge emotional and psychological effect on those communities. Now, you are a research fellow with the Death Tech Research Team. So please tell me what that means and uh, what is your role? Yeah, so Death Tech is a group of interdisciplinary scholars So we come from anthropology, media studies, science and technology, engineering, human-computer interaction, lots of different scholars in the social sciences. And we're interested in the relationship between technology, social change and death, very broadly defined. So we started off as a team looking at the impact that social media, that digital technologies were having on grieving So things like commemoration, memorialization on Facebook, online, and then slowly started moving towards other kind of areas in which technology has started to transform death. So whether that be, as we've discussed, new options for the disposal of human remains or whether it be kind of new designs for the cemetery and what that cemetery might look like. So that work we look at is really very much about like, how it is that technology is actually rewriting what it means to live and die. You know, we often think about death and dying as really steeped in tradition and unchanging. And, but actually, it, it, like any other social phenomenon, it really responds to and can be transformed by technological innovation. In my role there, particularly, I work on these alternative body disposal methods, but I also am currently looking into a project about the impact of COVID-19 on those who are working in the death care sector. So people who worked particularly in Victoria during the second wave last year of COVID and, and, you know, their kind of experiences of working on the front lines but a front line that was not often recognised in public discourse or by the government. You know, so they were... Their work was essential and there are essential services, but they were not recognised as essential workers by the government. So that kind of difficult position they are put into because of the taboos surrounding death. And so, yeah, it's been quite a year to study death and dying and be working on it, as I'm sure sure you're aware. So the other thing about technology that I find really interesting is that we sort of have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it. You know, we love it when when it works or when we perceive it's a value and we hate it otherwise. So how do you see, based on your research to date, how do you see technology transforming our relationship with death, whether that's with our own or with others. So how do you see technology playing its role? Yeah, technology is interesting, exactly what you said, which is that 
idea that you love it when it works and it's kind of terrible when it when it breaks down and I think that's that's no more illustrated than with the phenomenon of zoom funerals during COVID-19 and just I mean how great that that was that people could all of a sudden connect around the world and, and be together despite these social distancing restrictions but the absolute terror and distress it could cause when all of a sudden the the wi-fi broke down or you weren't able to to interact in the same way that you'd want to, or the very high stakes that technology has uh, when it intersects with death, when it intersects with, you know, some of the most profound and significant experiences we are likely to have in our lives. I think contemporary technology in particular has an ability to forward this discussion of death literacy and and to to allow people to be more knowledgeable and come to terms with their deaths earlier in their lives. One of the early findings from our research on death and digital technologies and social media was the way in which that these social media platforms were kind of animating the dead in new ways. So in the Western world in particular, we often use the metaphor of, of, of sleep for death, right? You know, cemeteries are, are dormitories for, for sleeping was the actual um, Greek origins of that word. And, you know, we often, you know, if someone's gone to sleep, resting at peace is, is how we talk about death. But when people are able to tweet after they're, they're gone or, you know, appear on Facebook posts or be activated and, and put into new social networks through technologies, then all of a sudden that, that sleep becomes not restless but perhaps active so that the dead can play a, more of a, a role in our, our everyday social lives. And I think, you know, you only have to look at kind of online spaces to look just at at how much kind of death literacy, advocacy and education is going on. There's now huge YouTube channels that are devoted to demystifying death and dying. I follow quite a few young morticians on TikTok who make videos Mm -hmm. about embalming and, you know, working at a funeral home and all those kind of things. So I think in many ways death is part of allowing people to learn you know, sorry, technology is, is, is helping people learn about death. And it's, it's, it's also kind of allowing people then when the time does come and a loved one dies to, to pick through the options of, of what's available, what's possible for their funeral. So no longer we have to fall back onto the conservative choice because we can have a quick Google and see what's out there and see what we actually might prefer for our memorial of our of loved ones. So in many ways I think it's really breaking down those silos around taboos of death. So what do you think has contributed to this perceived taboo around death? Well, it's kind of an interesting, I mean, scholars have argued quite a while now about actually is not is death a taboo, but do do people, are people really scared of death? Are people don't want to talk about it to the extent that they do? Because I certainly, every time I bring up my research topic, um, at a cocktail party or everyone has millions of questions and people are quite fascinated mm-hmm. you know they want to they want to ask me questions about okay what happens inside a crematoria and what happens in this funeral and what should I do and that sort of thing so I, I think we we often think of death as taboo because it's uncertain we don't have enough knowledge about it. it it's confronting to human mortality all of these kind of grand ideas about existential crisis that death throws us into but at the same time it has become a conversation for for debate and exactly that a cocktail party subject so I think you know that that kind of idea of death as a taboo can be somewhat of a misnomer I think people just need the right forum to think about it and the right 
conversation partners to engage with it in. And we don't necessarily have to have it sequestered in, in that manner then. So then what difference have you seen across cultures in terms of how the dead are perceived, how they're treated and how they're remembered? One of the great attractions of studying death as a cultural anthropologist is that we're always looking for things that are both human universals but also demonstrate the extraordinary diversity of human culture. And there's no better example, I think, than death. All humans die. It's one of the few things that we all do. We've been doing it for quite a while. Um, But we do it in an extraordinary array of ways, of different ways. And the different approaches that different cultures take to death and dying, everything from do you tell the person who is dying or deceased that they have a life-ending illness or do you not tell them, do you not inform them, to questions about how people treat the body, they treat their remains, how they, you know, what funerals look like, what are the tone of funerals. It is a sad, sombre, formal Roman Catholic mass or is it a jazz performance celebration as in the kind of New Orleans tradition of funerals, for example. So, you know, there's nothing that we do around death that is natural, coming back to that point. Death is natural in the sense that everyone dies but nothing that we do really is based on logic or sense. These are all kind of wonderful creative responses that humans have to making sense of death. And, you know, when people talk about new alternatives as being kind of outlandish or weird or odd, you have to think But everything we do in relation to dead bodies and relation to the dead is kind of odd and made up, right? And so why can't we create more attractive alternatives in that way? And I think a lot of people are now looking around the world at different cultural and religious traditions to think about perhaps other ways, perhaps better ways of dealing with death and dying than they currently have within their own societies. And I think that's that can be a really helpful thing for help people put it in perspective. I think also we become, because the world has become a much smaller place, we do actually start to see the differences you know the differences and the um, the variances in across cultures, across societies, communities, even just families, and I guess that can only be for the good. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, we often we really we should never really think about Australian death culture as the singular. You know, we have multiple cultures of death and dying in Australia, and that's what makes. That's what makes Australia so interesting in many ways and, you know, the different communities, how they've responded, for example, just to the last year has been really fascinating to see, you know, looking at how people have adapted, for example, Jewish traditions of sitting shiva to the social distancing restrictions, you know. I know someone uh, who told me about a, a, you know, a Google spreadsheet that they had set up where everybody signed in for a 15-minute period that they would visit the house and sit shiver. So they would have a continuous stream of people in and out of the house but never no more than the, the limit, completely within the coronavirus restrictions, but keeping that tradition, that social tradition of being together alive. And, you know, that's one of the things that I think makes Australian life and death really interesting and, and really rich is, is that kind of diversity of, of cultural and religious traditions that we're, we're awoken to. And, and I think there probably needs to be a lot more work done by scholars just as, as to how those traditions have begun to influence each other and how they've all contributed to Australian death culture. And I think having a 
being thrown a curveball like COVID that forces us to be creative is actually a really nice way to reflect on death in a more positive way. Yeah, I agree. I think there was a lot of fear that COVID-19 restrictions and, and the last year, you know, obviously we've, we're seeing kind of images of, of mass death, mass burial, of grief on our TV screens kind of more than ever before, really, you know, probably not, you know, since the last kind of world war or perhaps, you know, Vietnam war or we haven't really seen that kind of pandemic level exposure to death and dying and conversations about it in the public discourse. And in one way that can be quite confronting and scary and the restrictions in place around funerals and mourning can be quite, you know, exactly that, restrictive. But in other ways it's allowed people to be very creative and I have heard from many funeral directors and people who work in death care that actually, you know, small intimate funerals where people had to be really creative about how to memorialise the dead and how to celebrate them have actually in many cases been more meaningful or at least just as meaningful as large funerals, which is not to dismiss kind of anyone's grief at not being able to attend a funeral personally, but that in many ways it has allowed people just to rethink exactly what it is to have a funeral. What are the, what are the essential elements? Can I do it differently? What would have mum or dad really liked, you know, and, and is there a way that's more personal, more individual that we can commemorate them rather than kind of following the same steps as we usually would have. Hmm. So for my final uh, question, so I'm interested, uh, Dr Gould, in how your research and your insights from that research has influenced your own view of death and I guess particularly in terms of thinking about your own death. Yeah, it's a great question and one that I'm always really tempted to to kind of do a, a poll of death studies scholars whenever I go to a conference. I I suppose I never really thought about my own death before researching it. And now I not that I think about my own death all the time, but I really, you know, having seen all of the different options, I've become quite relaxed, I suppose, about what happens to my body. And I I suppose I've become quite materialist in the sense that I'm not I don't really mind is probably the answer I am signed up as an organ donor and I hope that whatever is left of me can do some good in the world but then I would just like to go out in the world with as little kind of impact environmental impact as possible and in in a way to just kind of go back to the dirt or be cremated and I don't really like the idea of having a large tombstone or even a you know, a kind of monument. I'd prefer the idea that that everyone just uh, had a really big party and uh, enjoyed themselves and ate really great food and drank really great wine. And I think actually in many ways that's where a lot of death studies scholars end up. Okay, so thank you so much, uh, Dr Gould, for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to listen to your experience and your insights uh, on this subject as a cultural anthropologist. Um, So I wish you all the very best in your research and uh, please take care and thank you again for joining us today. In the next episode of What About Death, I speak with Dr. Sarah Winch, an Australian healthcare ethicist and author of the book, The Best Death, 
how to die well. Dr. Winch is also a very strong advocate for the development of death literacy. She explains what death literacy is and why it's important to talk about death during our lifetime so that we are more prepared for death when it comes. I look forward to your company then. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.